Hello and welcome to The Weekly Skeptic. I'm Nick Dixon and this is our first official episode of the podcast. Very exciting. New Prime Minister, new podcast. And like Liz Trust, we will deliver, we will deliver, we will deliver. And we'll be going through all the week's top stories from a skeptical perspective. It's in the name, Weekly Skeptic. Focusing, of course, on the unholy trinity of COVID lockdown mania, climate catastrophizing and the myriad evils of wokeness. And I'm joined by Daily Skeptic founder, Mr. Toby Young and our editor, Mr. Will Jones. And I thought we'd start with Liz Trust. She's here. Do you trust her, Toby? Uh, well, I think, yeah, the, 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 do I trust her not to lock down? She did say um, during the leadership, one of the leadership hustings, maybe on two occasions, that she wouldn't lock down again. Um, I think she gave herself a bit of wiggle room. Um, and it's kind of not something you can take to the bank anyway, because, of course, if there was an Ebola outbreak, she'd lock down again. Um, uh, but... We published a piece on The Daily Skeptic this morning by Michael Sanger, an American writer, um, who pointed out that during the lockdowns, she was actually um, pretty supportive. There was no indication that she was sceptical or in any way anti-lockdown. Maybe that means she was just taking collective cabinet responsibility for the policy. Um, but certainly there didn't seem to be much evidence. And I hadn't even heard so much as a rumour that she was anti-lockdown before she said that she was there in the cabinet arguing against lockdowns and wouldn't lock down again during the hustings. So it's much like with Brexit, she was the figure, she was a Remainer, now she's the figurehead of Brexit. She was a lockdown maniac, now she could be the figurehead lockdown sceptic. What do you think, Will? Are you, are you convinced? Yeah, well, she didn't just vote for the lockdowns and support the lockdowns. She also voted for the vaccine mandates on the care homes, uh, care workers and for uh, for NHS workers and for the vaccine passports as part of Plan B. So she she voted for all of them. I mean, she's a cabinet member, so you might so you could say that you'd expect that for a uh, uh, for a, a member of the government, a senior member of the government. Uh, but even so, it's it's not exactly the signs of a of a skeptic. She says behind closed doors that she was arguing for fewer restrictions whenever she was given uh, whenever she made any argument. She made an argument for fewer restrictions. We only have her word word for that. There's no evidence of that in public. Um, so uh, it's 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 good. I think it's good to hear that politicians now are coming out and saying, are saying that lockdowns they're really downplaying any support that they gave to lockdowns. They're trying to big up how how much they how much they oppose them and how much they won't do them again. That's definitely that's definitely a good thing. It shows that shift that shift against lockdowns in public opinion. And there's no and there's very few politicians coming out and contradicting them and saying, oh well actually I'm I was I was really keen on lockdowns. I can't believe we didn't lock down further and harder and and, and faster. So so there's you can definitely see that that shift shift in the wind of, of against lockdowns. Uh, but like you say, Nick, that that's all very well now that there's no supposedly deadly virus um that's uh, doing the rounds it would be quite another thing if there was to be a, a hyper infectious version of ebola that's uh, and, uh then i imagine that a lot of tunes would change yeah it, it's very annoying that it's this late and they they already locked us in our houses and took our jobs and all our rights but at least they're saying it now and they've realized it's very unpopular i you know you hear from people like kemi that they not that she was against lockdowns you sort of tend to believe it more than that she was bound by collective responsibility perhaps you have to extend the same charity to liz trust my favorite part of the, her speech was when she said, I'm going to govern as a conservative. And this, everyone was outraged on Twitter that she was going to actually, a conservative was proposing to govern as a conservative. Kevin Maguire couldn't believe it. He wanted her to govern as a communist, but she came out and said, no, I'm going to be a conservative. I thought, what an amazing, they've been in arguably 12 years or less, depending on if you count the coalition. And it finally, someone wants to be conservative at the last minute. What do you think that's over? <laughs> 
Yeah, I well, I hope she I hope she does govern as a conservative. She certainly stood on a fairly conservative platform, although you know she's always billed herself as a fundamentalist believer in free markets. And then her first policy announcement is price controls in the energy market. So um, yeah, who knows? Um, uh, the 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 I I spoke at there was a there was the first anniversary. Um, uh, sort of, um, uh, what would you call it, um, a rally uh, for the Together campaign, which is um, aligned with um, uh, the Daily Skeptic, I'd say. Um, and uh, they, they're, they're, they're lockdown skeptics, uh, they're anti-vaccine mandates, they're, they're pretty sound. Um, and um, I, gave a, I, I, gave a, I, gave, I gave one of the speeches, there were about a dozen speeches, and talked about the kind of difficulty about how do we deal with, what, what, should, what attitude should we take to these um, people who were seemingly architects of the lockdown policy now condemning it and claiming they were never in favour of it from the get-go. I mean, you know, that biblical expression, you know, better one repentant sinner than 99 righteous people who are going to ascend to heaven, no problem. Um, uh, but the problem is that they're not repenting. They're, 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 arguing, they're not saying, I got it wrong, you got it right, I'm terribly sorry, I'll do better next time. Um, they're claiming that they were never in favour of the policy. They were never sinners in the first place. They've got nothing to repent for. The only reason they voted for the policy was for reasons of collective responsibility. Had it been up to them, they never would have imposed the lockdown in the first place. So that I, I, it's and sort of like it's it's it's. It, but I think we should, you know, just accept that. I suppose. But it, it's all, it's it's almost like um, you know. If all the, I mean, it's like it reminds me of um, the number of people who claim to have been at the impromptu Sex Pistols gig at um, Islington Screen on the Green in 1976. I mean, if everyone who claimed to be that at that gig was that, you'd need a venue the size of Wembley Stadium. Um, and it's similar with all the people who claim now that they were never in favour of the lockdown. I mean, you'd think that you know it's hard to find anyone, uh, but actually, Lee Kane. Um, who was a spin doctor in Downing Street um, uh, under Boris um, until he fell out with um, Carrie. Um, uh, he, he wrote a letter to the spectator. So Rishi was trying to out-compete Liz to prove what a lockdown sceptic he was and gave quite a, an interesting interview to Fraser Nelson on The Spectator in which he said that he had argued against lockdown in cabinet, asked to see some kind of cost-benefit analysis, but, but presented himself very much as the kind of lone voice of reason in the cabinet when the first lockdown was being discussed. Didn't mention that Liz was piping up and objecting to it. Um, but um, uh, Lee Kane responded with a letter and then a piece in The Spectator in which he said he couldn't believe Rishi was um, trying to disown what was clearly a very sensible policy. Um, and we, Will wrote a kind of demolition of Lee Kane's um, response in The Daily Skeptic, which I thought was very good. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Will? Yeah, can I just introduce, just to quickly say, in case anyone doesn't know, that Kane was, he was Boris Johnson's director of communications during the early stages of the pandemic, and, and Will's written this piece. Yeah, so he... So he so he wrote a letter to uh, the Spectator, which they then the next uh, next day uh, they uh, let him expand into a full article where he um, he he claimed that they had to lock down that um, he remembers the day clearly, to March the fourteenth, 
um, and the fact that they were presented with the, the supposedly devastating data uh, that it was growing exponentially. This is he's, he's completely fixated on this idea that the, that the epidemic was growing exponentially in the middle of March, and it was just and it was only going to get worse and worse. There, there were going to be hundreds of thousands of of people who were who were getting seriously ill with this, and um, and thousands and thousands, um, uh, you know, you know, tens of thousands of people dying. So. Um, and so, and so he's he's challenging lockdown skeptics, saying, "Well, what 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 would what would you have had uh, what would you have had us do instead?" And um, and he also had Rishi. Um, he also said that Rishi was uh, was wrong. He 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 claimed that Rishi was wrong uh, to say that they weren't being told about the the, the disadvantages and the costs and harms. And he said that Chris Whitty was talking about that um, all the time, but. But he's missing the point, of course, because the point isn't that we, we don't really care whether during the, first, the during early March or mid March, Chris Whitty was sitting there saying to uh, every now and again to Boris and and Dom and and Lee that you know there might be a few disadvantages to this idea of locking people in their homes for a few months. Um, but what Rishi was saying he was asking for was a proper commissioned thorough cost benefit analysis that that would feed into the policy making that would then be that would be published and that they would be used as the basis for justifying in the usual public health way what um what whether this was the best most effective most sensible way of dealing with it and so 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 lee kane's uh, argument there just uh, just 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 well just to just to um make one more point in the defense of the lockdown zealots at the time their argument was there's no need to do a cost-benefit analysis of what the costs of locking down will be because it's transparently obvious that whatever the costs, whatever the economic costs of locking down, the economic costs of not locking down would be higher, um, not least because the NHS would be overwhelmed. Um, and uh, uh, so, so that, that was their kind of what they thought of as their killer argument when people pointed out the enormous economic and social costs of locking down, they said, well, yes, all, that's all very well. But if we allow, if, if we let the virus rip, um, the cost, we know, we just know that the economic and social costs, regardless of the number of lives lost, will be higher. Yeah, but it's all based, it's, that's all based on catastrophizing, isn't it? And, they, and, and no one is proposing to just let it rip and not do anything to protect people and to prepare and to uh, to protect the vulnerable, um, but 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 there, but people were generally but people were proposing to to let it spread among the people who weren't vulnerable to it uh, because that's how you develop that's the ultimately the only way as we've seen over the last two and a half years that's ultimately the only way that the outbreak comes to an end because enough people build up natural immunity to it. But the, but the point is that why was it that why was it that Sweden and Anders Tegnell and their officials there could look at the data that was already available at that time in March and that they could see that these dire predictions being made by Ferguson and others, Neil Ferguson and others were were just were, were just completely unrealistic that they just went yeah. down. And- but also, um, I mean, as, as you pointed out in your piece, um, the number of people who were being infected um, wasn't increasing exponentially on March 23rd when they locked down. It, it was actually declining. Well, exactly. This is in the way that, that, that one of the fundamental flaws in their argument, in Lee's argument, is this idea that it was that it was still exponentially rising in the, in the, at the time of the lockdown and that the, only the lockdown stopped it from being a complete catastrophe. And this is really, really important, isn't it? The, and this was pointed out uh, by Carl Hennigan in eight, as early as April 2020. He just looked at uh, when the deaths um, peaked in London and across the country and saw 
that you could project back and see that it was already falling. This was confirmed by Professor Simon Wood, and the, the Spectator actually published a letter by Professor Simon Wood immediately below Lee Kane's a letter that last week so so that that's so, uh, simon has has published in the spectator before as well so the, they're, they're well aware of this data he's done a peer-reviewed study showing that infections were already falling that new daily infections uh were already falling in across england uh by uh the middle of by the middle of march um and so it so the the, the outbreak had already peaked um, so, so it just wasn't, it just simply wasn't the case that it was rising exponentially. And in fact, Chris Whitty himself in July of 2020, he was put on the hot seat. Uh, at, he went to speak to a, um, a committee of MPs and they were challenging him saying, you should have locked down sooner. You should have locked down sooner. And he actually came out with a, with a good response and a correct response, which was, well, actually R had already gone down below one. So the epidemic was already shrinking. That's what he meant to some time before the lockdown actually happened. So, so he was even, even Chris Whitty said it wasn't necessary to lock down sooner. Of course, he didn't follow through on that, which is, well, therefore it wasn't necessary to lock down at all, because if it's already falling, the, the, your whole rationale for, for locking down to stop this supposedly exponential explosive growth is completely thrown out of the water, isn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, there was that devastating graph where there was the th- where the three lockdowns occurred, and in each case, COVID was already was already going down when the lockdown kicks in. That's worth looking at on the site. The um, yeah, Lee Kane was really doubling down, wasn't he? he? He's still talking about ventilators, which are totally discredited, and you know, a last ditch attempt. Oh, that dead, even... deadly! I mean, they they were discredited yeah. very quickly as 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 being. Yeah, a... we had to lock down because we didn't have enough ventilators. It's incredibly <laughs> still saying that. Why is he not embarrassed to still yeah. to say that? But I hadn't realised that they that they were that they they were realised to be killing patients. There was a it was yeah. a poor it was an extremely ill conceived protocol that came from I think China initially uh, that that people were being put very quickly on ventilators uh, because they thought they needed to do it to stop it from spreading the virus, even though it didn't achieve that. Um, and and this was a, and this was a very this was a very intrusive procedure and and was and was killing and they they worked out it, it was it was killing people just, um, just to wrap this up will um i've often made the point that the first lockdown wasn't necessary because um infections were already falling and therefore there was no benefit and an enormous cost um to which the lockdown zealots reply yes they were falling at that point, but that's because Boris left it too late to lock down. And had he locked down two weeks earlier, he might have saved, what is the number, an additional 10,000 lives. How do you respond to that? Right, but there's there's, there's, there's plenty of studies now. Um, I quote five of them in my article, and there's plenty more that look at uh, that look at the timing and the strictness of lockdowns at different countries and different states of the US and look at their relationship of that to the number of COVID deaths, the number of cases, and the number of of excess deaths and there's just and none of these studies find any relationship between when the when places when countries and states lock down and the and the covid outcomes now we can look into the reasons for that it's a surprising outcome obviously uh, we can and and it's and and lots of people argue discuss debate about about why that is um, is it because people are already doing it voluntarily is it because is it because viruses only infect so many people um, and um, and like on the Diamond Princess, um, or or is it for some other reason? I mean, and and that's and that's those are very interesting questions. But the fundamental fact, the kind of the data point, is that there just isn't this relationship. So so two weeks. So had it had he done it two weeks earlier, there were places that did it that locked down a week earlier, and they and they didn't they didn't necessarily have fewer um, fewer deaths, fewer cases. So so it's an intuitively appealing argument to people 
you know, because people think that, that lockdowns will, will prevent this. Oh, yeah. Ultimately, they rely on this ridiculous argument that it would have been so much worse if we hadn't done this unprecedented thing. And somehow we had a, a responsibility to do this thing, this policy from China that we should never even be considering. Somehow we're immoral for not doing that. It's an incredible bit of gaslighting, I always think. Do you want to move on to the ivermectin story? It says ivermectin cuts COVID mortality by 92%. I thought it was just for horses. So I was really confused by this article oh that's because you've, you've been listening to anthony fauci there nick yeah that's what i do so i mean the saga of ivermectin is a um uh it, i mean it's, it's just a terrible story of of a suppression ivermectin right is a is a cheap uh drug widely widely available very very safe chris Whitty says that it's it's tolerated at 10 times the level that it's given um, you know, it's a very safe, very cheap drug. Pharmaceutical companies um, aren't going to want um, this, um, aren't going to want it instead of the drugs that they've got patented, right? So, um, uh, and so, and so then we have this, we just have this saga and they just really, really, and the social media companies get involved. And I think one of the only, Toby, one of the only stories that we've had really have flagged on Facebook or was it on Twitter was was one where we basically told people about ivermectin and 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 so it's so it's, it's really really clamped down on yeah it was that extraordinary how I mean the social media companies persuaded themselves that um, recommending ivermectin as a treatment for COVID nineteen was harmful yeah that people taking it were going to harm themselves there was no benefit. And they were going to harm themselves. It was like it was as though if you if you if you recommended ivermectin, if you even spoke about it in a neutral way, if you did anything other than condemn it as you know as 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 harmful horse medicine, um, uh, it was as though you were recommending people take bleach. But it's bizarre because it's 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 a it's 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 known to be a safe drug. You know, it's it's the, the discoverers of it got the. Um... Uh, I think of the Nobel Nobel Prize. Um, so now we've got this study that shows that it's ninety two percent effective at, um, at at reducing mortality if you take it if you take it regularly. And this this study is done. Um, they they basically looked at two hundred thousand people as a city in in Brazil. Itajaí in Brazil. Yep. And um, and they looked at uh, people who took it regularly based on what they were prescribed. So we know that they took it or didn't take it because we know whether they were prescribed it or not. Um, and those who took it irregularly and those who didn't take it, they looked at how many were hospitalized, how many died. And they found that zero of the of those who took it regularly were hospitalized. Um, and there was a 92 percent reduction in those um, who died from <clears throat> from COVID nineteen, so this is a, this is a, a large and reliable study, and it's been peer reviewed and published in a medical journal. But then you've got these other studies, which uh, which show that it supposedly doesn't doesn't do anything. And and the, and the reason is the authors of this study say, and the proponents of ivermectin um, say that it's. Um, and you bear in mind that these people aren't being paid to promote it. In fact, they're being they're being censored and and punished for promoting it. So they have no incentive to do it other than they think that it's true. But the point is, it's a safe medication, and what. Is what is the proposal instead? What is it that people? What is it that the people are worried that people will be doing if they don't take ivermectin? Well, let's look at what the NHS protocol is for people who are ill um, or people who are worried they're going to get ill with 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 COVID. What do you think it is? What do you think the NH, official NHS advice, which has not changed, I should add, since um, uh, since the very beginning? Uh, stay stay home. Clap the NHS. Stay safe. Yeah, bang, bang, bang your drums. Basically, they said, "What, what, what medicine do they do they tell you should take? Nothing. They, there is no alternative prophylactic medicine or early treatment medicine for people ill at home. They say that anyone, even if you're at high risk, um, should take at that point." 
uh, they just simply say you can take paracetamol or ibuprofen if you're feeling uncomfortable. And they say that people who are at the very highest risk, um, once they've got symptoms that are getting worse and not better, they can then contact um, the NHS and try and get some kind of medicine. But the point is, they don't. it's not like they have an alternative that, that, they, that they want people to do. So it's not like people are being harmed by taking ivermectin instead of the, the, the recommended drug. I mean, the, the, I think if I'm being if I'm being honest, I think I think that they're worried that people will take ivermectin instead of getting vaccinated, given that ivermectin is an established, proven, proven safe drug, and the vaccines don't exactly fall into that camp. Um, I think that would be a, 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 a fair enough thing to think that people will do. Do you have anything to add on that one, Toby, or do you want to talk about Israel? Well, hey, why don't we? Why don't we? Um, I think that's enough science for the time being. Um, yeah. Why don't we? We, we also talk about. Um, wokery pokery on um the daily skeptic and we haven't actually published anything yet on the rings of power um but um i i think we should talk about it nick because i know that you and i are going to disagree about it because you are a tolkien nerd and i think you were um absolutely outraged and horrified by rings of power whereas um uh, and and not just by the colorblind casting um but whereas whereas i i actually i i came to jeer and stayed to cheer. So I watched it yesterday. I watched episodes one and two, and I'd, I'd read some things about it. I'd read that Amazon were deliberately delaying when people could post reviews because they wanted um, to stop outraged fans like you from you know <laughs> giving it one star um, for fear it might kind of in some way harm their massive multi-million pound investment in this series. Anyway, so I, I'd heard about you know I'd heard about the kind of you know why are there why are there dwarves you know um, set in this particular time period that's completely at odds with you know the, the rules of the Tolkien universe and um, why is Lenny Henry in it you know um, why are the hobbits called half foots um, why is the kind of chief elfin warrior a woman you know it's just kind of woke um propaganda uh grafted onto you know a kind of romantic conservative literary giant and wasn't this a travesty so i was i was expecting to hate it um and i ended up loving it i thought it was incredibly well done masterfully well done i thought the story unfolded uh beautifully um the production values were incredible i mean you can see the money up on the screen i was absorbed by all the characters i i was disappointed that there were only two episodes available i was ready to binge it then and there um and i thought it was actually a lot better than the house of dragons um which uh which i think is a bit clunky and feels like a kind of b-tech version of game of thrones whereas this felt like a properly fully imagined television adaptation well Shall I tell you why you're totally wrong now? Yeah. Well, I mean, even watching it is wrong. So I went back and deliberately watched Fellowship of the Ring again on Amazon to make a point to the algorithms. That actually, I'm, I'm watching the real talk. Of course, it's still a film adaptation, but it reminded me of the timeless, ancient, beautiful world that is the West in 2001 when that film came out. And uh, <laughs> the, the, the reason we shouldn't watch it, it's, it's many reasons, but... Or the reason we should at least be annoyed. And people say, oh, you're a racist. Lenny Henry's saying you can accept a dragon, but you can't accept a black hobbit. And this is the accusation that we're just big racists and we can't sleep at night because there's black hobbits. It's not really the case. I mean, Tolkien, obviously he's an English person writing at a time in, about England, about Europe, about a certain part of history. And they're supposed to be set way in the past in our earth, actually. It's the Middle Earth is just way in the past. He saw them as histories and he rejected the idea that they were allegories. So if you take them as history, 
you say, okay, these are histories of certain characters, and those characters are in a certain time and place, so then naturally they're of a certain race. This this disingenuous argument about you can accept a dragon, it's, it's so silly. Just because they're fictitious, we don't go and change Black Panther to White Panther because he's fictitious anyway. What are you annoyed about? No, because it's about a certain people and a certain struggle at a certain time, and that's the same with this. And when you are making a conspicuous change, to me, it's up to you to justify it. If you're saying Tolkien, the genius was wrong and we're going to change it. You have to say, well, why? And we know it's political reasons. It's the only possible reason, right? And then we ask, well, what are those reasons? And then we find it's the idea that diversity is a good in and of itself. It's the idea of critical race theory type ideas and the West is is bad. And the, the people doing it, it's not about race, but it's about saying we we want to take the cultural capital of these incredible stories, which come from the, a certain tradition of fantasy writing. And we want to and we want to add our politics to them deliberately to change them. But we can't do our own stories. We have to take Tolkien stories and change them. And as a side, a little side point, it's not really a side point, it's just an extra adding insult to injury. You know, Tolkien was a Roman Catholic, a staunch Roman Catholic. And these, these people, meaning the woke type people who do these things, tend to hate Christianity as well. But I, I mean, I, 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 was, I was, as you can imagine, I was kind of hyper alert for any wokery um, in the Rings of Power. Um, and apart from the casting, you know, okay, and, and maybe the kind of sexual role reversals of the kind of warriors, um, I mean, that, that's kind of so, that's, that's, that's so kind of embedded and omnipresent now. It's almost not really woke anymore. Beyond that, there didn't seem to be, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't some suggestion that the orcs were like you know um uh the 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 soldiers of the british empire you know or that or that or that colonialism was the real sin of mogorth the kind of chief villain um that there didn't seem to be any kind of other wokery grafted onto the story beyond the colorblind casting and the kind of gender role reversal stuff i mean and in a way nick um i think the fact that this the the, the kind of the original kind of architecture of the story can withstand um, that kind of um, uh, grafting onto it of our kind of contemporary concerns. Doesn't that just testify to the durability of the architecture? I mean, in the same way that Shakespeare can be messed about with in all sorts of ways, but, you know, to the people who object to that and say, that's not faithful to the original story. How could, you know, um, how could, uh, Hamlet have been black, you know, or whatever, um, or, or a woman. Um, you think, well, well, yeah, but but the fact that the the fundamental story, the building blocks of the story, and the kind of art can survive that kind of interference is testifies to the greatness of the art, doesn't it? I thought initially the people objecting to the colorblind casting were being caricatured. Like that's not really what they're objecting to. They're objecting to the grafting of a kind of woke ideology onto um, something they value and which they think of as conservative and traditional and pro-West. Um, uh, but, um, uh, and, and they're just being you know, misrepresented by wokesters who are trying to discredit and caricature their argument. But actually, when I watched it, I thought, well, maybe they haven't been misrepresented. Maybe all they've really got to go on, maybe all they're really objecting to is the colorblind casting. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's, it, I, I see your argument. It's, and you've got a slight advantage on me in that you've watched it and I refuse to. <laughs> the, the the point on Galadriel wasn't that they, we oh there's a female hero because there's strong female characters in in Lord of the Rings there's Eowyn there's Galadriel there's Arwen and so on 
But Galadriel was in a serial character. She was not a boss bitch. And that was the complaint that they'd changed it. Right. But yeah, look, it, you could conceptually go back and say, you know, what if everyone was black in Henry VIII's court or something? But once, you, once you've had a, a, a black character play Anne Boleyn, I see that, you know, all bets are off. The question is, it's not that you have a particular problem with that. It's, it's, it's why it's they're they're making a change and they're doing it for for certain reasons. They because they they say you can't have white people even in even in these stories. So, but I see what you what you mean. You're claiming it that that aside, and then you're sort of taking their side a little bit and saying we're just sort of cranks. And you're saying that aside, there's nothing in the content. But people on a on a very simple level, people don't like these stories to be changed. But I'll give you a, a sort of silly example from an infinitely lesser work, X-Men, when Rogue was changed from an adult woman to a you know a teenage girl, people didn't even like that. So obviously fans like it to be very faithful anyway. But that's that's a lesser point. But yeah, I'm not I'm not totally sure you've won the argument, but I, I see what you I see I feel like you're you're an infiltrator arguing for the uh, the woke <laughs> I think, side. I think, I think you'll have to watch it. Um, but I didn't detect much wokery pokery beyond the colorblind casting and the gender role. There's an argument uh for um for, for just being f- faithful to the original material, isn't there? And I think the point about Tolkien is that in his in his work, that that the, the, these are different races, and each and each race is is self. You know, they're, they're even called races, aren't they? And they they're self contained, and they've got very specific characteristics. And in a way, it's just about the inner coherence. Now, I'm not taking a firm position either way, but the point is that there's no real explanation for why there would be a black hobbit. I mean, it's true. We don't know the genetic makeup of hobbits or why why hobbits would necessarily be any particular colour. But, it's, uh, but of course, we know in the real world why people have different skin colours because of their ancestry and, and lineage. When, of course, that doesn't, really make, that does, that doesn't have any inner coherence for, for, for a hobbit um, because, because the hobbits all come from one... Yeah, but I think, I think to, well, to defend Lenny Henry's argument, I mean, yes, you have to suspend disbelief. Um, when you know Lenny Henry is playing a kind of wise old hobbit, um, and you, 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 I don't think you know unless you're unless you're kind of, I, I sort of think unless unless you're kind of predisposed to be irritated, then why isn't it as easy to suspend disbelief about that as it is about you know the snow troll which is dispatched almost effortlessly by this rather frail looking woman. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I, th- I think that's, I do think they're two separate points. Although I also think the second point is important in the, in the last Jedi. And I am someone who's predisposed to be annoyed, obviously, but in, in the, in the last Jedi, for example, we took the archetypal brilliant, you know, incredible stories based on Jungian archetypes of Star Wars, which we all love the first three movies. Then they, they take that and in the horrific apocalypse of the, the last Jedi, they, they have a, a female Jedi beat Luke Skywalker easily in minutes He's one of the best Jedis ever. She just destroys him easily. She's just picked up a lightsaber, practically. She's like, how does this work? Oh, I've beaten Luke Skywalker. Absurdly overpowered female character. So there is also, that is also annoying on a separate level. I mean, I think maybe the kind of, on a, to make a kind of broader point, um, Tolkien, um, I mean, I think, I think uh, he, he, obviously, if you put the Lord of the Rings in context, it, uh, on one level, is an allegory about... Um, uh, the threat that Nazism posed to Western civilization, to Christendom. Um, uh, and it was defeated by different groups forming an alliance, coming together, fighting the common foe. Um, uh, but um, don't we want, I mean, it, what we care about surely is defending those Western Judeo Christian 
values and traditions. And if we see people of different ethnicities and different genders, even trans people in the cast playing these defenders of Western civilization, shouldn't we welcome that? Shouldn't we embrace uh, that degree of inclusion when what we care about is the survival of the values. We don't care if they're not being upheld by white men. We don't want them just to be upheld by white men. We want them to be upheld by everybody. Toby, I think you're, you're projecting that, that aim onto Tolkien's work. I mean, he, he specifically rejected the idea that it was an allegory for anything and was very critical of C.S. Lewis for his um, clearly allegorical uh, Christian Narnia um, creation. Uh, because he, because as a as a as a student of mythology, he was very he was very emphatic. The mythology should just be allowed to stand as mythology, as a as a set of stories where there's there's ideas that have got gone into the the cultural pot and have come down through the generations. But 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 trying to but trying to give them an overarching overarching nar- um, narrative and boil it down to something isn't is would be would be very much contrary to what. Um, he was saying, and he wrote about he wrote he wrote about the theory of of story and of mythology, and and inner inner coherence was one of the fundamental principles. So it's not about suspending. It's a, when you say you can suspend disbelief to 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 enter into the story and the world of the story. And of course, he created this 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 world. But the but the important thing was that the world had an inner coherence because that's what made it believable and what allowed you to enter into it. So 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 suspending your your real world beliefs to enter into the to the fantasy world is it is for him and I think he's right in this a completely different thing uh, to meeting something in the fantasy world that just doesn't make sense. Um, yeah. Within the fantasy world, uh, because that breaks the breaks the story um, in a way that suspending your disbelief of the real world doesn't. Yeah, because he, specifically talking more than anyone else, he he elaborated this incredibly complex world, and as Will said, he, he rejected the idea there were allegories. As I said before, they were they were more like histories to him. And um, but you know, Toby's given the other side. He's actually on a pro inclusivity toby's almost, he's our inclusivity officer <laughs> well, the i think i think i think the pro, the pro, i think I, I don't think that um we should think of um the western values that we all cherish and want to defend as belonging in any sense just to people with white skin no we don't know when people object to colorblind casting um uh in in kind of works based on you know the literary canon whether it's something by jane austen or william shakespeare it often sounds as though they're that they don't like the fact that uh, something they feel belongs to them um is being is it's almost like objecting to cultural appropriation, but sort of uh, in reverse. And I always think that the problem with the cultural appropriation argument is um, that it, it, it assumes that particular traditions, um, particular customs, particular stories belong to particular races and ethnicities when there's something universal about them. And you know, great art is universal and transcends those sorts of differences. So it really, it really shouldn't matter. And I think um, you know, what color, what, what skin color the actors have I, I've, all, I've i've never found it that difficult i mean i don't like lenny henry much but actually he's much less irritating than you'd expect him to be in this i think you've got to give it a whirl nick well i think you'd be pleasantly surprised you've made your case i mean yeah obviously there's the other side can can frame it as a sort of racist straw man i, I understand your point western values obviously english values british values whatever you want to say of course can be adopted and are adopted by anyone and and that's a great thing but 
yes, it's just we're talking about these specific works, and and that's all. But I think we both, I think we both made our argument pretty well there. I'll I'll still get called racist, and you'll be fine. Luckily, Toby, you'll get uh, you'll get welcomed into the the cathedral. I'm not trying to virtue signal. I, I genuinely don't have a difficulty with suspending disbelief. Have you read the books, Toby? Just as a, not to try and catch you up, but as a side. I did. I have. I have read them. I didn't. I haven't read the. What's it called? The Samaritan or the Samaritan or whatever. Samaritan. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't read that one. Okay. Yeah, well, I read them at, at eighteen, but. Um, you never get Tom Bombadil in it. He was the ultimate example of a character who just is himself. I watched a 20-minute video, who is Tom Bombadil? And the conclusion was he's just Tom Bombadil. So very much how Tolkien saw them. But I think we've nailed that one. Anything else you want to cover before we go That's uh, where we might agree or disagree? We've got Andrew Tate, Israel, Arctic, anything? That's- yeah, look, let, why don't we – let's briefly talk about Andrew Tate. We ran something, didn't we, Nick? Um, sorry, um, Will, um, on – uh, the Daily Skeptic yesterday by Laura Dodsworth, um, in which she was sort of defending Andrew Tate, at least opposing um, the censorship of Andrew Tate. He is now, I think, what the most cancelled man in the world. He's sort of overtaken Alex Jones, hasn't he, as the sort of villain de jour. Yes. So Andrew Tate, I've been following him for many years before he was even that well known. Very interesting guy, former kickboxing champion, became a kind of YouTube influencer, provocateur, lots of controversial, funny, interesting opinions. And he sort of blew up on the internet. He became massive on TikTok because you can develop that incredibly fast growth on there, particularly because people were getting paid in certain cases, a certain kickback to promote him on TikTok, which is another story. But he became massive. He became the most Google person in the world. And then suddenly he was canceled from everything, YouTube, TikTok, his Gmail, anything you can name, gone. He'd already been banned from Twitter many times in the past for saying things like depression isn't real. And so now he's, he's become the most famous man on the internet, now the most cancelled man. Of course, they're citing misogyny. But as I claimed on GB News, my claim is that they are u- appealing to a morality they don't even believe in in order to silence their ideological opponents. And misogyny is a straw man because there's rap songs all over the internet and anything you can name. And the, the piece on in Daily Skeptic was from Laura Dodsworth. And she seemed to be saying that she'd, her son had told her about it. She'd asked her, some teenage boys. And their overall take was, we can... F- listen to Tate, we can figure out when he's ironic, when he's insightful, we can decide whether to listen to him. We don't believe the misogyny claim. We liked him because he was such a breath of fresh air in a culture where masculinity is hated. And we 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 love Tate. That was my takeaway. What do you think, Will? Uh, yeah, I think I think it was. It's not that even though they were saying that he wasn't misogynistic. I mean, they could even accept that he that some of his opinions were. They just said that they could they could decide for themselves because because they, they can think for themselves and they can decide whether to to agree with that. And that was Laura's point as well that they um that you know because she's she's she identifies a, a, as a feminist um um and but um she, uh, and so you know so she has no um she has no interest in support in in supporting uh, misogyny uh, obviously um but. Uh, but you know, it's about it's about free speech, isn't it? It's about the, and, and it's about the fact that the, even that these you know they may be teenagers, they may be sixteen or or whatever, but but they are capable of thinking for themselves and decide and 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 telling and deciding for themselves that they don't agree with something that um, that someone they they're watching on online is saying. Yeah, and I'm I'm surprised it hasn't been a bigger maybe because people just aren't aware of him in in a certain demographic. I I follow the what the kids are up to. So for some reason I know about him, whereas I was on GB News, Andrew Doyle hadn't heard of him. He did defend him on grounds of free speech. Leo Kirst defended him to, to a degree, but he said, well, he hasn't got the comedian's excuse of being funny. But I pointed out he's actually funnier than a lot of comedians. The, the US comedian Tom Segura used to mock him 
then Tate would do these reaction videos that were actually funnier than the comedians mocking him. They eventually had him on the show. It was a massive hit because he is hilarious. And he operates in that zone. And I do it myself on Free Speech Nation on GB News, where I'm sort of, am I being serious or not? It's a pretty funny zone. You could argue Joe Lysett did it the other day with the Liz Trust thing. A kind of funny zone of, are you being serious or not? And if you've got half a brain, you can discern that for yourself. But Toby, are you a big Andrew Tate fan? You know, I've, I've only, my sons, I've got three teenage sons, and they would occasionally show me videos and i think they 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 knew that what he was saying was kind of outrageous and politically incorrect and provocative and designed to be provocative and and they were kind of showing it to me sort of uh, you know can you believe that, that that this guy is saying this what do you think of this um and kind of looking for my reaction um but um like you i think that um like what you said originally i think they they can kind of they, they, because they're attuned to you know youtube culture they can tell immediately you know they can they can hear the register in which he's speaking um they know when he's being ironic they know when he's being serious they know when he's kind of straddling the two um and um you know there's no degree of kind of confusion there i don't think they they when he's been kind of um when he's kind of amping up his kind of um misogyny in order to kind of, uh, you know, troll the libs. They know that's what he's doing. They don't think he's being sincerely, you know, um, uh, misogynistic. Um, uh, and it's as though, you know, as, as so often with these cancellations, it's always quite hard to tell whether the people doing the cancelling are actually tone deaf um, and, and just can't hear those registers or, or whether they can hear them and they know exactly, you know, what it means in context uh, but pretend they can't hear it and that they're tone deaf because that enables them to kind of manufacture and kind of cosplay outrage kind yeah. of uh, more easily and it it always feels a, it always it, it, it and i I'm, I'm never quite sure whether they can tell you know um uh, and it's as though it's as though that they're guilty of what they're accusing andrew tate of which is you know of kind of playing a character not being able to not knowing whether he's playing a character or whether he actually genuinely holds these views and it's just like you can't really tell with them either um but um uh it's interesting um i mean it, it raises the question of well what will become of the online safety bill because we'll obviously see much more censorship of this nature if the online safety bill becomes law and both rishi sunak and liz truss said that they would take another look at the bill and uh, make sure that it didn't have a chilling effect on free speech. You got the balance right between uh, uh, respecting free speech and preventing children from being harmed and so forth. And they said they'd take another look at the legal but harmful clause. Um, but um, rather alarmingly, we learnt, I think, yesterday that, uh, or actually I only learnt today, that Liz Truss had offered the um culture secretary job um to nadine dorries who who was doing it before and this bill is very much nadine dorries's baby um uh so it's a bit alarming to discover that even though liz supposedly recognizes that the bill is problematic and needs amending um nonetheless she wanted to reappoint the kind of woman who'd given birth to it um but it turns out nadine dorries doesn't want to do that job she turned it down and that that may that may be because liz says look I'm perfectly happy for you to resume your job as culture secretary, provided you scrap the legal but harmful stuff from the online safety bill. And Nadine declined to do that. And that's why she hasn't taken the job. So I guess we'll learn soon enough when we see who the person appointed culture secretary is. But some some rumours have it being Penny Mordaunt, who is the most woke, particularly on culture issues, 
of um, of all the leadership candidates in the recent contest. So that would that wouldn't bode very well. I'm hoping it's Kemi Badenoch, but I don't think it will be. Yeah, that's very disturbing. I did see that Nadine Doris had turned it down, hoping to get a peerage. And um... yeah, I think she's on. But I think she's going to be on Boris's. Um, uh, honours his his resignation list. So Boris has two lists. Apparently, um, he has a political list of a point of, of of honorees, and then a resignation list. And um, the political list is bound to be challenged, um, uh, but the resignation list is less likely to be challenged because it's a custom in British politics that when a prime minister leaves office, they nominate various close allies for various honours and they're less likely to be challenged. You're, you're supposed to grant that courtesy to the outgoing Prime Minister. So if she's on the resignation list, which I think she probably is, then I think she probably will get a peerage. And which one is it that you, you were hoping to be on, Toby? Well, the the the, the resignation list, because that's the one that's right. less likely to be challenged. But alas, I don't think I'm on either. No. I, I know that. And by the way, I think people should go back and read your brilliant article about it, uh, Boris's tragic flaw from July and the Daily Skeptic, which I reread. It's got some brilliant writing, which is you actually quoting an earlier article you read. But it's you, it's you coming across the young Boris. And I just wanted to add quickly on your London Calling podcast, you did you did say the phrase since Boris became Labour leader, and I thought. Is yeah, that a slip yeah. or is that just accurate? I, I might have gone with green leader, but, you know, it's not far off. I think it's Freudian. Freudian Liz was once a liberal leader, though, wasn't she? She yes. was a liberal Democrat at university. So I, I actually don't was, mind yeah. that as much as some people because haven't a lot of us made the journey from a sort of liberal Democrat in peaceful times in the Shire and now now we're in this horrific world where our culture's falling apart. We've become increasingly right-wing. Is that not, is that not a normal I think she, she was brought up as a lefty by her parents. Um, so Liberal Democrats, I don't know, might have been a compromise, but she joined the Tories as soon as she left university. So I she think was, it was brainwashed by quick, her parents. Pretty, pretty quick journey. Um, uh, do we have time, uh, Nick, uh, to um, to just uh, wheel back and, and just have a look at the Israel uh, story? Because I do yeah, think it's very... Israel, basically, they finally admitted to the side effects of the vaccine. Then they didn't. Yeah, so 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 there's been a leak this week, basically, of, of a very damning video um, of of the Israeli government being told by some experts that they'd asked to look into vaccine side effects, being told by them that yeah, this is really bad, that we're getting we're getting picking up some really serious, long lasting side effects that people don't know about, and we need to do a lot more research. We need to tell people. Um, and then the and then uh, and this but this video is leaked because the report that actually came out following that uh, d- did some tricks with numbers use the uh, use the whole population as the as the denominator in order to water down the number of uh, the number of side effects um, so use the wrong denominator uh, to, to to massively dilute it and so basically hide and cover up. Um, this uh, these alarming findings that this expert committee had had done, and so and so when that report came out, obviously someone who had secretly recorded this call, the people on this call didn't realise it was recorded, leaked uh, leaked this uh, rec- this recorded um, call uh, to um, to the press in order to to show that what the report said was very different to what the government. Um, had been told. So this is a this is a, this is a really big thing. Basically, after, and it's, so one of the things we learned was that the Israeli government only commissioned a proper study and analysis of the safety of the vaccines uh, at the end of 2021. So a year into their into their vaccination campaign, they finally said, "Oh yeah, we should probably actually look into how safe these things that we've just." Injected our entire population several times over um, with um, R. They, so then, so between December and uh, and May, they did six months 
they got these experts to do a six month study into how into what was going on with the uh, with the safety of the vaccines, what, what side effects people were having, um, and as I say, they, they, what came back was on this as on this call, and you can go on this on Daily Skeptic and find the and find the videos um, of because uh, they've been leaked of of them saying that this is um, uh, that that there's these neurological issues that hadn't been picked up. Um, that in sixty five percent of the cases they're still ongoing, they haven't resolved, um, and they're far more frequent um, than was expected. And this was only looking at the top five. Um, top five uh, side effects um, and heart heart effects was number six, which means they hadn't, this isn't even looking at the effects on the heart, uh, which we know from other studies is um, is a concern with the uh, with the vaccines. And also, this was they weren't even looking at things that hospitalise people; they were just looking at serious side effects that stopped short of hospitalising people. So this is just the um, so 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 despite um, this this what these worrying data, it's just um, it's just the tip of the iceberg. It seems. Um, so, um, but, the, but I tell you, the, the disappointing thing to me, um, obviously it's all, dis- it's all alarming and disappointing is that no, no mainstream media, either in Israel or, um, in the UK or America or anywhere, um, has, um, other than GB news, I should say, Neil Oliver, um, shout out for him for, for actually having the, the people, the people on his show to talk about this, but no one else, um, has covered it. Um, and it should be, it should be a major story. A pioneering country that's um, that's uh, discovered some serious uh, side effects and has then actively covered and then has been caught covering them up. Um, and the government hasn't made any statement. They haven't apologised. They haven't corrected anything. They've just they've just uh, stonewalled any any comment. And the media have as well. So, um, can I can I just confirm that n- none of us have been vaccinated? Is that true? I, I haven't been vaccinated. I won't even watch the new Lord of the Rings. I think we know the answer to whether <laughs> I've had the dodgy death jab. <laughs> I, uh, I I used to tell people my vaccination status, uh, but then I uh, but then I uh, I stopped because I found people were using it against me. I'll leave of that. So did I. I, I stopped for the same reason. It is quite dangerous, but now I think do people care as much anymore? I think people can work it out with me. Let's just say. <laughs> I said, I, I remember when you got COVID, well, when I got COVID um, for the second time, um, I, 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 my, my great fear was that um, I'd, I'd end up, you know, dying. But the, 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 that wasn't the big fear. The, the big fear was, as I lay on my deathbed, a Daily Mail photographer would appear at the foot of the hospital bed and, 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 and um, photograph me. And then I'd appear in the Daily Mail as as, um, as 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 a vaccine skeptic who had died of COVID nineteen, who could have been, and, and no doubt there would have been a journalist there trying to coax a, con, a, a kind of deathbed confession, a conversion out of me, whereby I, I expressed deep regret. But that, that that would be that would be kind of deeply humiliating to, uh, to to not take the vaccine and then die of COVID. Yeah, vaccine refusing. It. Toby Young dies from lack of vaccine. I had the exact same fear, but it was it was because I'm not as famous as you. It was that I'd be dunked slam dunked on twitter by a load of idiots saying see he didn't have the vaccine so i had this sort of slightly lower status worry <laughs> there, is, the there is a whole website is is it is it is a disconcerting read um to any skeptic um there's a whole website where they have collected the social media stories of people who were um who were anti um anti-vaccine and, re- and refused to take the vaccine and then subsequently died of covid and it is uh, you quite often see though i mean sometimes people compile the opposite um uh, which is um people who are you know absolute vaccine zealots 
who are quadruple jabbed and um and then and then experience appalling side effects but in the midst of these kind of of their of their appalling suffering um uh, managed to croak out that you know they wouldn't have done anything differently and they still are very pro vaccination and urge others to have it too yeah they they've got myocarditis and they're going but i'm still glad i i made this choice and you're like are you yeah, and can I just say the way we defeat the other argument, Will, is um, I've realised, which I've seen a lot of people doing, is just saying I'd rather die without the point. I'd rather die than get the vaccine, even if I die, because it's become such a point of principle now. I must say that that's where I'm at now. So, does anyone want to add anything? Because it's hard to top that. That, well, that, 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 that reminds me of, a, of, of an argument someone once made to James oh, was it was it was it you was it an argument you made? No, I don't think it was. It was an argument someone else made to James Dunningpole, which is you know James Dunningpole won't take the vaccine because he's absolutely convinced that um, it, it's part of a kind of worldwide global conspiracy to reduce the population to a rump. So Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab and his kind of billi- that that gang of evil billionaires can control the population uh, more easily. Um, and I'm thinking it, it, the counter argument is well, but surely you know if their master plan is to kill people by rolling out this vaccination across the world, um, you know, the only people that are going to survive are going to be people like you and Nick Dixon, you know, and, and, and surely they're Bill Gates's worst nightmare. The last thing they want is to be in charge of a planet full of these kind of really, you know, ornery, obstreperous, disagreeable people. They just haven't thought it through, have they, Toby? That's the problem. They haven't, they just haven't thought it through. I actually heard the argument from some people on the internet that like that was going to happen and like, actually, it's all, it's more like the QAnon side of it. It is to get an elite left who are, it's a test to just have an elite left who are free thinkers to build the new society. So I've seen the other version of that. And, um, but do you know what? I am not. I don't go quite as far as James, and I have some friends who do, just where they say it's all to depopulate us with a vaccine. I just say, listen to Bill Gates. He said quite clearly in a video, I can get a profit from this and a return that I can't get from anywhere else. I can get it from vaccines. And I say, why look any further than that? So... Unless anyone wants to add anything to my conspiracy theories, no, we've, we've just we've just published an article on that lines uh, by Dr. David Bell from the World Health Org- um, of the World Health Organization, who's uh, who's uh, pointed out the uh, the pandemic, the global pandemic, and vaccine industry, and the way that it's driving um, driving it. It's not just about profits. He does he talks about profits and following the money, uh, but it's um, and actually he does he does mainly talk about that. But I I don't think it is just about the profits because I think I think it's ideological as well. I think that. I think it's it's I think it's it's very useful to them, um, and some of them will be purely driven by profits. Um, that it makes them money, but I think uh, I think that they that they 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 have this ideology of biosecurity and biosafety. Um, that they really do think that there's people out there trying to do biological attacks, and that's where it came from. It was originally biological attacks. It's like the war on terror and things like that. Um, and and then it's ex- ex- expanded into natural um, pandemics as well. Um, and uh, and they, gen- they they really do think um, that that there are these massive biological threats that um, uh, that we the, the world needs to be ready for, and we need to be ready for by um, by having having these ready made ready to go vaccines. Hundred days. That's what CPI is um, is all about. Is all about hundred day vaccines and ready with our lockdowns, ready with our distancing, ready 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 to cope with whatever whatever the the dastardly bioterrorists. Or the or the bats in China are going to throw at us. Yeah, I just think it's a good uh, jumping off point to to red pill and normie to say that what about the profit? We used to all admit that big 
big farmer was a bit dodgy. And I think it's a, you know what I mean? It's a good entry point for the normies, but go on, Toby. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that um, I've, I've read some of the things you've written, written recently, Will, trying to trace back that kind of um, biosecurity um, anxiety. Um, uh, that, 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 that's, that's a much more plausible theory, a much more plausible hypothesis than um, the usual conspiracy theories, which depend upon the conspirators being fundamentally malignant. Now, they're not malignant. They're, they're normally benign. They have a kind of messianic complex and they think they're saving the world. And that's what gives them the license to kind of, you know, um, ride roughshod over kind of the usual ethical constraints. Yeah, I wouldn't go as far as saying that's benign, but I know what you mean. They, they think they have good intentions, but they're just, they don't realize that they're folly. Okay, so that was our first official episode in the can. Please like and subscribe wherever you're listening. Go to dailyskeptic.org to be totally informed on what's really happening and also to donate because we rely on your donations. Anything else you'd like to add to that, Toby? Well, if they want to comment, if if people want to comment beneath articles, then if they donate um, at least £5 a month, they can comment, or £50 a year, they can comment for 12 months um uh yeah and we do we do rely on donations to keep the site going and to um compensate people like will for working on it full time um uh so yeah if you enjoy it and you value what we do please do donate okay and you can follow toby at toadmeister i'm at nick dixon comic on twitter at nick dixon on getter are you on the social media will uh, no, um, but obviously we are at the Daily Skeptic, so go and find that. I think we're is it at ls? What what is it? Um, I think it's I think it's at ld underscore skeptic. Okay, so or skeptics. Yeah, we better get that clear. But yeah, go go. You'll be able to find it. <laughs> and uh, but for Will, you'll have to actually go to his house the old-fashioned way. All right, so that was the first episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>